2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Let's listen now. This is God's Word. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even Though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So far in God's word. Um, So I'm not sure if you've ever read something in the Old Testament and ever wondered, okay, what, what is that really about? What's that even supposed to mean? Um, I, I had been reading in 2 Kings 6, which is why I asked for it to be read. And chapter 6 that you heard, or Elijah's servants cons- uh, seem to be concerned about where they're meeting and they need a bigger, a bigger space to meet. It's understandable. Elijah accompanies them down to the Jordan and they find this grove of trees and they begin to clear it. And I'll tell you, make uh, housing. And uh, in, the, in the meantime, of course, we hear of someone who swings their axes away and one of the axe head flies off and lands in the Jordan River. It sinks. And of course, sure enough, as we say Murphy's Law, as it were, it's, it's a borrowed axe head. It's always the borrowed one. And the guy panics rightly and he pleads with Elijah to help. And I'm not sure why he thinks the prophet's going to do anything about a sunken axe head that he probably should be told, like, you know, what were you doing to make it fly off? Um, and, you know, are, are you not being careful enough? And what am I supposed to do about it? And dive in the water and get it. Like, But that's not what happens. And it is a rather odd moment. It says the man of God says, where did it fall? And he shows him the place and he throws a stick in there. And he makes the iron float, take it up. And he reaches out and he picks it up. And I remember the first time I read that, I had already, at that point, had a couple of degrees in theology and ministry experience, and I still sat there and went, what is that supposed to be about? So I kept reading, which is a great rule when you're confused, because one of the things we say is context is king, right? The context will tell you. And so I read on through 2 Kings chapter 6 and chapter 7, and I read how Elijah leads Israel to show mercy to their Syrian enemies, uh, which ceased their raids on them. 
And then you read along more and about this siege that's on the city and the Israelites. It's so horrific that they actually begin to cannibalize one another. It's, it's, it's as they express, they seem doomed. The end is inevitable. And yet in one day, as the prophet says, in one day, in the span of one day, the siege is broken. Israel is feasting again in one day. And the image of the floating axe head is supposed to come back to your mind. That's what you're supposed to be thinking of when you read of these events. There, there are stories about how God loves to do the impossible. And what we're going to see is he's going to do the impossible through mercy, through his people, the church. He loves to make the impossible happen through his people. The floating axe head, an iron axe head, is an image of that. You say, what does that have to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 2? Well, this is what Paul is talking to the Corinthian church in chapter 1 about all, or excuse me, the first letter, about all the ways they are really haven't worked the gospel into their thinking and into their church life. Um, they've lined up behind various preachers early on in First Tim, or First Corinthians, and you know they've said, "Well, we're, we follow Cephas, or we follow Paul, or we follow Timothy." And he's like, "You, you are of Christ, don't you get that yet?" And so he works out the gospel chapter by chapter, sorting out all kinds of issues of a church that's growing rather quickly. And he writes them about a lot of issues, and he deals with mainly towards the end of it them questioning his authority. Actually, what had happened at one point was that as he came to visit the first time and stood up, he was opposed by people uh, who were opposed to Paul. They had stirred the congregation up about his authority and so forth. And so he was hurt by that. He was wounded by that. And so in our text we read where he says, I came to trust to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the door was open for me in the Lord. My spirit was not at rest. I didn't find my brother Titus there, so I took leave and went to Macedonia. He says, like, I had a great ministry opportunity, but my spirit's not at rest. Troas is the name for Troas, Alexandria of Troas, and apparently they like the name Alexandria. There's lots of cities named Alexandria, so they, so they call it Troas to differentiate. It's on the seaport. But um, it's a very strategic Roman colony by now. And likely Paul goes there to preach the gospel, but to meet up with, uh, with, with Titus so that he can get a report back. He had sent a letter to rebuke them for their behavior and for their treatment of him, and he was waiting to hear back how they would receive his instruction and rebuke. While he's waiting, the ministry that he has there in Troas flourishes, and yet it's overwhelmed by his anxiety that grows in him of how the Corinthians are going to respond to what he says. And so Paul writes, he says, listen, um, I've forgiven the individual. I've wrote a harsh letter. We'll, we'll show you that in a moment. But he says, I've written that, and I've forgiven him. He's repented. The problem is the Corinthians hadn't repented, hadn't forgiven him. And Paul takes that seriously, just as serious as correcting their gospel thinking or their lack thereof. He says the failure to, to forgive is a failure to connect to the really heart of your faith. It's really a failure to put on a public display the very thing that makes Jesus and his people glorious. In fact, he'll say there in verse 10 that forgiveness is 
is for our sake who dwell in Christ. It's so much about being in Christ. It talks about this triumphal procession that he through us he spreads this fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ. I want to connect those two thoughts because I think Paul keeps writing to do just that. This aroma of Christ, the aroma of life. And the, the actions, the living in mercy and forgiveness. Not just any forgiveness, but it's when the church as the body displays this merciful posture towards those who harm us. He says, when we do that, we place the victory of Christ on display in our life. It becomes so vivid to a dying world that they get this smell of life before them. An aroma of Christ. It's Jesus. Paul writes to the Ephesians in 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is more than any program, more than, more than any kind of new facilities, more than anything around and about the church that are good things. This beautiful aroma that should exude from God's people and through the church, this loving kindness, this mercy, forgiveness, is what is the parade, as it were, is about. Our, our, our communities around us should see in us Jesus in that we are quick to forgive. My wife likes candles, and I've come to discover some of them are kind of expensive in my opinion. They're, they're, they're just wax as far as I'm concerned, but they're big candles and they give off beautiful smell. And uh, as soon as you come in the house, you, you know when there's one burning, it fills, the aroma fills the house. And, you know, I like most of them. There's a few I'm not so, so much a fan of, but You've walked in a house, maybe the candle, or better yet, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you walk in a house and that smell. And you know what it represents. You know what it means. Paul says churches should be smelly. There should be a smell of Jesus. And the, the connection to Second Kings for me is this is the axe head floating. This is how the impossible can happen. A small band of people that nobody else knows, not particularly gifted or talented. Sorry, but I mean, Paul says you weren't the wisest, you weren't the, the greatest or the strongest. It was Christ in you. How can we change the world? How can we transform a community? Right? He says through smell, through the aroma of forgiveness, the very thing that doesn't look like it should transform anything. Paul says that should be a, a parade. The power of forgiveness that makes a parade of victory because Christians smell like Christ. There's my thesis, as it were, this morning. The power of forgiveness, the parade of victory, the people of Christ's aroma. Notice first, we'll take that and move quickly as we can here, but verse 5 to 11 really talks about forgiveness as a power, the power of a church that if we understand how it works, where we get it from, what's involved, it becomes a very potent thing. He begins by saying why you should forgive. Mercy and forgiveness is really, he says, the only way to deal with pain. He begins, he says, if anyone's caused pain, and he's referring to this offender. He says, they've caused it not just to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to everybody. And he basically says, you know what, the, the fact that it's, it's hurt everybody and it's affected us should be punishment enough, he said. So he begins by highlighting something we, we often don't think of, and that's the, that we have to begin when there's hurt and pain to recognize the, the debt that's incurred. To recognize the pain that's involved. 
Uh, later in chapter 7, verse 8, this is what he writes. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see the letter grieved you only for a little while. I rejoice, not because it grieved you, but because it grieved you into repenting. You felt godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. He goes on to talk about how wonderful that is. So with that, we learn that the majority of the Corinthians have repented about this. It doesn't say what they did with the offender, what discipline was necessarily involved. Um, but the problem stands is they've not come to forgive the offender. The Corinthians aren't ready to forgive him. It's a big deal for Paul. It should be for us. Right? And just as false doctrine was a problem that he had to correct, so too was their failure to forgive this sinner. So Paul calls them to practice really one of the most essential Christian activities, and that's to forgive. First, he says you have to acknowledge the pain that is involved. In describing this offender's sin, Paul says you have to acknowledge two things, really. The debt of pain that is incurred and how that debt of pain affects the whole body. It's not just involved with a few people. Offense creates a relational debt. We need to be honest about the pain it creates because only forgiveness will deal with it. Right after Jesus shows us the process of dealing with offense in Matthew 18, you may remember Peter's a little unnerved by it. He's like, because he realizes how much it hurts. So he goes, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive? Right? How many times? Because it gets painful after a while. I can't keep doing this. Jesus, you might remember, says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared. He says, by the way, 70 times 7, like whatever it takes. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. Visual picture of forgiveness. Okay? There's this king who is a landowner who owes him 10, he says, uh, he says 10,000 talents. It's enough to bankrupt a king. Appreciate this. It's enough to really basically thwart anything he wants to do. It's a huge sum. So he says, understand the magnitude of the debt. And then, of course, he highlights in the story how this the landover begs for patience, which Jesus says is at the heart of forgiveness. I love the word macrothermia, to be long-suffering, to have a very long boiling point. It's a great word. We translate it sometimes patience. But he, you know, at the heart of forgiveness is a spiritual patience with the ability to bear uh, hurt and wounds without being undone by it. He says, of course, he gets to the point you have to cancel the debt. It has to pay for this debt to be able to deal with it. The point being is that when someone wrongs you, there's a sense of an emotional debt. Something has to get paid down, a relational wound. The Corinthians refuse to forgive this person. That really concerns Paul. Paul says, anyone whom you forgive, I'll forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, I've forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. He's trying to lead them along here. You know, this is how we live out of grace. When we fail to do it with each other, it really goes against our identity. It goes against our eschatological identity. Your future, what's really true about the ultimate you. Uh, Tim Keller in his, in, uh, Cardus magazine wrote an article about, called The Fading Forgiveness. He says, the Bible orients us towards the Christian life embodied in an eschatological community. By that, he just means that, you know, what makes us who we are is who we are in Christ and where we're going together. 
He says, the church is to be a foretaste of the future world of love and perfect community under the lordship of Jesus. Our sin inclines our behavior that regularly weakens and breaks relationships, but through the Spirit, we're given the ability to realize partially, never maybe fully in this life, something of the beauty and the joy of those future relationships. And then he says this, through the practices and disciplines of forgiveness and reconciliation now. Our judgmentalism, our criticalness, our failure to forgive, it's a denial of who we are in Christ and will be. We have a shared identity that if we access, if we live out of it now, of who we are going to be, who we are in Christ. It says one of the things that exudes is forgiveness. It's the only way to deal with relational pain, to pay down debts, and Paul's point, to guard the church. To prove your identity and your unity. So you say, what does that look like? What is forgiveness about and mercy? Paul talks about you should rather turn and forgive and comfort so that the person won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And I beg you to reaffirm your love. We don't have time to go into all this. But of course, forgiveness is it involves comfort. It's out of the power of love. Um, Puritan Thomas Matton defined uh, forgiveness, forgiving someone that it includes these things. I'll just read them. He says it. It's resisting revenge, not returning evil for evil, wishing them well, grieving at their calamities, praying for their welfare, seeking reconciliation so far as it depends on you, and then seventh, he said, coming to their aid in distress. Good list. If you're struggling with any one of those things regarding someone who's hurt you, maybe you haven't quite gotten to forgiveness yet. According to Jesus in his parable in Matthew 18, he talks about that king who, of course, took pity on him. He canceled that guy's debt, and he just let him go. But that central piece of forgiveness is canceling, paying down a debt, not seeking revenge. You should rather turn and forgive, says Paul. You pay it down. Instead of the ways that we, and I won't get into this, but you know what I mean, all the ways we kind of subtly look to make somebody else pay, you shun them. You don't return the call. I don't know what what it is. You know, we may say we forgive them, but we kind of make them pay. Instead of that, forgiveness is about canceling a debt. It's how you forgive. It's not just the words. I like C.S. Lewis. He says, "Well, love the ideal of, of the idea of forgiveness until we have somebody to forgive." Ordinarily, we try to base it on ourselves. We try to basically kind of grant the mercy ourselves. The Bible's really clear. It comes out of Christ from being in Christ. Paul, in Ephesians 4.32, he says, you know, forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you. Second Corinthians 2 here, verse 10, he says, you know, basically do this in the presence of Christ. Forgiveness, I think his theme here is that it's putting the grace of God in Christ on display in your life. Say, how do I do it? How can I be so long-suffering and pay down a debt and forgive people? Put yourself in the gospel story. I mean, live out of that truth. Look what Christ has done for you. Just take a moment before you speak to the other person and consider how he's paid your debt. I mean, we have really no idea how great that debt was, do we? And that he paid it at his own cost. It wasn't, we talk about grace being free, it is for us, but it wasn't for him. And if you never put yourself 
and your suffering and your trouble and that great suffering and His suffering. You'll never be long-suffering unless you see Christ paying down your infinite debt and you put yourself there and you see that's my identity in Christ. And you, then you say to yourself, listen, after all He's done for me, I'm glad to have this opportunity to show Him what it means to me, how much He's filled me, to, to reflect it to someone else and forgive them. So he says, Paul says, that's a witness of the Gospel. That's a testimony of grace. You know, that's why I was so touched by 2 Corinthians 6 when I read about the king of um, Assyria here discovered that Elijah has been prophetically kind of passing on intel. That's the part we didn't quite get into. But he gets really upset because he's like, everywhere we go, the Israelites seem to know where we are. Somebody says to him, well, that's because uh, Elijah is like, he's in your dreams. He's he kind of he's in the room, as it were. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. So he says, well, let's kill him. They wake up that morning, Elijah and his servant, remember, and they're surrounded by that army, the Syrian army. And he freaks out. His servant freaks out. He says, you shouldn't worry. He prays. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And the servant sees the chariots in the sky. He says, greater is him that is for us than the one that's against us. And then he prays that the Lord would close the eyes of the army against them. And actually what happens from that point on is because they're blind, it becomes a story of mercy and forgiveness. It, it, is, it is really, it, it, it sort of exegetes the floating axe head for us. Second Kings 6.19, Elijah said to them, this is to the army, this is not the way, this is not the city, follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened the eyes and they saw, behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, My father, I'll strike them down. Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat, drink, and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. When he had eaten and drunk, he sent them on their way, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. You see that? In the kingdom of God, mercy is the real power. Forgiveness is what changes hearts. Forgiveness is our weapon, as it were. There is a kind of forgiveness that only the gospel can explain. There's a kind of forgiveness that when it's seen by the world is just so utterly remarkable and stunning. This beautiful grace, this returning love for evil, right? As Jesus described it, when you're hurt to pay down the debt out of the wealth of his love, where are you going to find the ability to forgive people like that? So change the narrative in your head, right? We get so offended at times. How dare they say that to me? Don't they know who I am? I don't know what narrative goes in your head, but that's what goes in my head. After all I've done for them, how can they do that to me? Right? If you change that narrative, if you let the gospel reorient it, and first of all, you see, you're not the innocent one. I'm not hard done by. The Bible's really right, Romans 5, 8. While I'm still a sinner, Christ died for me. 1 Peter 2.24, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he continued, he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. What if that's the narrative? What if Luther's right that we always carry his nails of that cross around in our pockets every day? What if in my exposed, rebellious state, he did take off his royal robes? He laid aside that glory, Philippians 2, and became like me and laid his life. What if the gospel really is about substitutionary atonement? And the true king came and died for us puppet kings so that I could have the Father's forgiveness. You see where forgiveness comes from? You put yourself, you live out of that gospel account You see that the real king bowed and served us false kings. And if you never put your suffering in his suffering, you'll never have the ability to be long-suffering. Look at the king who became a servant. Now, when you do that, you'll be forced, says Paul, to go back into the presence of Christ to be able to do it. You know who Corey Ten Boom is. In her book, Hiding Place, I don't know if you've, not re- if you've ever read it, but she recalls her meeting one of the German guards from the concentration camp where her sister died. This is what she writes. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower door in the presence in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers I had seen since the time. All of a sudden, it was there again. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-bleached face. That's her sister. She says, he came up to me at at church as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. He says, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that I, as you say, have my sins washed away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had spoke so um, often to people at Blemodel, the need to forgive, spoke so often about the need to forgive, I kept my hand at my side, even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, I prayed, forgive me, help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest, not the slightest warmth or charity. So again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along down through my arm and to my hand, a current passed from, from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Forgiveness is the power of the church. It it will, to get it, it will force you back to Christ every time. Paul says, I've done this for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now watch what Paul does, because the two thoughts are connected. As As he moves on into verse 12 and 16, he says how that is a parade, he calls it. To the degree you practice that, that gospel power forgiveness, 
He goes, thanks be to God, because in Christ he lead, always leads us in this triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Fragrance was in the temple everywhere, remember? All over the place. That sacrifice of animals produced smoke on the altar. Exodus 9, 29, 18 says it was this pleasing odor and offering of fire to the Lord. All the fragrances, right? The Lord smelled the soothing aroma was a common phrase. So why does Paul not just say that our fragrance of Christ is just display? Why the word parade? Well, quite simply, a display is a display. You have to come to the display to see it. It's a parade because it's moving. It goes to the people. It's a celebration. Paul says the Christian is someone who is the parade of this fragrant smell and aroma of Jesus. And it's more than worship. He says it's victory. It's a smell of victory. He leads us in this triumphal procession. And through us spreads this fragrant knowledge of him everywhere. The gospel is about the triumph of Christ. The victory of Jesus on the cross. I love how he writes to the Colossians in chapter 2.14. He says, there he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all those legal demands, having set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And he said, that's how he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. To the degree that you are shaped by that truth in your life. To the degree that the thought of that just starts to melt your heart and overwhelms you and you think of your sin and you weep for your sins. Or that, that, the, that those sins place Christ on that cross to the degree that, you know, you think of that forgiveness in Him and it just makes you rejoice in weeping. To that degree, your life will become a parade. A parade of the victory of Christ. And I, let me tell you this. Let me just say this. It's not until you realize how bad you smell <laughs> that you will begin to appreciate the aroma of the forgiveness of Christ. The greater the grasp that we have on the depth of our own sin, the more transformed you will be by the love of God in Christ. Listen to me. We, we often say, sure, sure, I believe Jesus died for me. What if we never weep for our sin? What if the gospel never electrifies us? What if it's not giving me peace in trouble? What if it's never comforting me in pain? What if it's never causing me to weep tears of joy? Have we appreciated the weight of our sin? The beautiful aroma of his love in Christ? To the degree that we're our stench, as it were, that we see it gets turned into the beautiful aroma. That's the triumphal procession. The spreading of the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The Bible says Jesus smells like sacrificial love. Jesus smells like sacrificial love. Walk in Christ, Ephesians 2, 5, 2. Walk in Christ, walk in love, excuse me, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The cross is the love of God. It is the aroma of his sacrifice to us. 
It is what every single anointing oil and burnt offering and fragrant incense and meal offering in the Old Testament, it all pointed to him. All of it. Christ himself is the aroma of life and our hope of our salvation. And what does that look like when he pours that out onto you? One of my favorite smell moments in the Bible is both those moments when the women pour out that oil on Jesus. In the first one, we in, in John 12, there's this dinner for Jesus and Martha served, right? And Lazarus is one of the ones who, he went from being really smelly to not being smelly, but um, he's there and Martha takes this a pound of expensive ointment from pure nard and she anointed Jesus, the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet and with her hair, it says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Beautiful image. Her joy at the thought of his mercy just became this tangible, this, this aroma that just filled the place. Luke 7 probably describes a different moment. But this woman also does something similar. And of course, it's Judas who's upset about it. Do you know what that money could do? The Bible says he was taking money from the coffers. That's why he objected. But he says, Jesus says, listen, here's why you guys have trouble celebrating this. He says a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? They answer, well, the guy who owed the most. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And Simon, you might like me, but she loves me. Do you know why, Simon? She had a sense of the debt of her sin. She could smell the stench of her death. And how precious that forgiveness had become to her. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. It's not just an aroma. It's this parade of a victory. Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That's that moving display of the mercy of God in your life. In Paul's day, the Roman generals would return in this big pomp and ceremony, this, this uh, triumphal procession as they come back from war, they'd get all these war horses out front, the most expensive, white ones if they could get them, and they would, um, you know, have this ornately gold chariot, and they'd clothe themselves in purple, and all the people would be paid or forced to come out with waving palm branches, and um, he would hold the golden scepter, I think the golden eagle, and he would have all his captured enemies in this train kind of behind him. You could see the image. And he would paint his face red to give uh, credence and homage to the God of Jupiter of war. Jesus entered Jerusalem. Not so much pomp and ceremony. He didn't have to pay anybody. They, they, they attempted to welcome him like that. His face would soon be red, but it would be with his own blood. His victory would not just be over a few in chains. It would be earth-shattering. It would be universe-altering. Death and sin would be in line behind him. He would bring them in and they would become his captives, says Colossians. Death is going to be made to serve you. You are going to be more than a conqueror through Christ who loves you. In 2 Kings 7, the next story about the floating axe head is about Israel under a siege that takes so long they begin to cannibalize 
well, even their children. Overnight, the Syrian army flees. Leaves behind, as we read, we heard Ernst read, all the food is what was most important. The Lord had made the Syrian army hear the sounds of chariots, right? And they thought, they, they got the Hittites and the Egyptians to come. Let's get out of here. And they just leave everything. It fulfills the promise that Elijah said, tomorrow, the sale prices will be back to normal. There'll be so much food. It's how God makes an axe head float. Right? Colossians 2.15 You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he did that, and he disarmed and made a mockery of the authorities and the rulers. And as you live that out, as you celebrate that sacrifice, Take great joy in that sacrifice. Get comforted in it, right? Be, be strengthened by it. You will have the power to forgive others out of that great forgiveness you have in Christ. And that God will put on display like a parade of victory in your life. A moving display that will go everywhere with you. Thanks be to God, he says, who leads us in Christ in a triumphal procession. He's spreading this beautiful Fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We're the aroma. We're that aroma. The power of forgiveness, the parade of victory. One last thing, we'll close quickly, but we're the people of the gospel aroma. All this power of forgiveness creates this fragrant parade. It's not just a parade, but by the way, can I just point out verse 11? Paul says it's a defensive tactic too, right? Forgiveness is so that we won't be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his designs, schema his plans, his schemes. The adversary knows how we smell. His job is to make us smell bad, right? To to have a smell that's contrary to what we talk about. And he's going to do that in two ways. He's going to divide the body and corrupt your testimony. He's going to divide the body by keeping you from forgiving one another. Because that will do all the work in, in corrupting the testimony. But forgiveness builds these firm bonds and a faithful witness. He said earlier, it's going to protect the body of Christ, right? As you guard our hearts in that and our fellowship to the degree that we live out that gospel and forgive each other as Christ forgave us, nothing will thwart the enemy like that sweet aroma of the people of God pouring out that forgiveness on each other. That's how we're guarded. That's how the fellowship is guarded. But Paul says this, and I want to close with this. He says, you know what? It, it, it is the one thing that produces a faithful witness, We are the Rome of God. We're Rome of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. He says, who's sufficient for these things? We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, as men of, of, but, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. He says, like, who could possibly be a living parade of this beautiful aroma of the gospel in our, it's a, it's a tall order. How can you do that? Who could be sufficient? It's the same kind of like incredulity, like how can an axe head float? Paul's words, you speak in Christ. You speak, we are those speaking, you don't speak about Jesus. Maybe we do sometimes, but you speak from within him. You speak out of the position that you hold. It's a, it's a, it's a witness that's experiential, he says. 
We don't peddle God's word. We don't sell it as a commodity. It's not, we don't use it. He uses this word, literally, it says we don't water it down. We don't change it. We speak out of sincerity, out of what we know to be true. We don't talk about the gospel and fail to live it. We live it because we're forgiving each other. We have, we can sincerely speak of it as good news because we've experienced it as good news. The one thing forgiven people do is forgive other people and then they tell other people where that forgiveness comes from. That's your witness. That's your witness. Of course it involves speaking the gospel, explaining how you could forgive somebody. In 2 Kings, this is the last account, in chapter 7, after the Syrians flee, um, you know who we heard this morning who discovers that they're gone? It's the account of these four lepers. The four lepers um, have this dilemma. They're kind of wondering before they realize the Syrians are gone. They're like, if we go into the city, they'll probably kill us because we're lepers and there's no food in there. But, you know, if we, there's a chance that if the Syrians don't kill us, if we go to them, well, if they kill us, we're going to get killed this way. But if they don't, they have food. So they go out. And they discover they've left, and they've left behind. Essentially, all they care about is all this food. And they've got this dilemma. If we go back to the city, they still might kill us. So they take the food, and they start to hide it in the loot. And at one point, conviction hits them. We're not doing what's right. This is a day of good news. This is a day, this is a gospel day. You who have been forgiven. You who have been given the riches of Christ. Have you told others, have you used it to forgive others and then told others as commissioned by God in the sight of God, you speak in out of Christ. See the power of forgiveness? That parade of victory of the church? Because he's made us to smell like Christ. 